Bible before I stood up here because now I'm trying to find the passage. But uh, it was the great theologian John Bon Jovi that uh, said this. Yeah, that was a joke. Sorry. I'm going down, down in a blaze of glory. Take me now, but know the truth. I'm going out in a blaze of glory. Tonight, Luke, through Jesus, wants to tell us about glory. Because see, you see, Jesus indeed came in glory. And Jesus indeed promised His disciples and us glory. But what we see tonight is that when we think about glory and the glory that Jesus was bringing and the glory that Jesus was promising and how we would get there, that it is a little bit different than we would have expected. In fact, it's probably the direct opposite of what his own disciples, his closest disciples, the twelve, would have expected. So tonight we're going to read here about glory. So if you would, read with me Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old is risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words and of of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to Him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray before we look into this. Father, as we do every week, as we come to your word, we pray that by your spirit, it would be just that to us, your word, that you would speak, speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, speak to our wills, speak to our affections. 
Father, do these things as only you can. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus came in and for glory. So that's what I want to look at tonight. First thing I want to look at is the glory of his name, then the glory of his calling, and then the glory of the Son. Okay? So the first one here is the glory of his name. You know, we haven't made it very far into the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to have to skip a whole lot uh, in the coming weeks as we try to make it to the end of Jesus' life and look at that as we wrap up this series. But Luke chapter 9 is actually a very pivotal uh, chapter in the whole Gospel. It's not even halfway through the Gospel yet in terms of uh, amount or volume. Uh, But at the end of this chapter, in verse 51, what we're going to read is when the days drew near for Him to be taken up, He set His face toward Jerusalem. So basically, as you read Luke's gospel, which was a compiled narrative, orderly, orderly, that's not a word, anyway, compiled in an orderly manner, um, he, he has a purpose and flow. And after this, everything is going to hinge on what we just read about. The identity of Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, and that identity being made explicit. Everything after this point in this gospel hinges on that fact. And that's what we see here at the outset is that his identity is made explicit. Because you notice when you read through the gospels, Jesus never shows up anywhere and goes, Hey, by the way, I'm that Messiah guy y'all been looking for. He never says that. Uh, And actually, when things like this happen, we see it. uh, When people say who he is, he actually tells them not to tell anybody. Uh, More on that in a second. Um, So he's been all around. His fame has spread. His glory, in a sense, has spread. People know that he's famous and they want to be around him. But here, for the first time, he's kind of publicly outed. You are the Christ of God, Peter says. Now, what does that mean? Well, the Greek word Christ literally means anointed. And so here's the best way uh, to understand this. When you think about everything in history, especially in God's story of God's people in history through the Bible... Everything up to Jesus had been leading to something. Because you see, when you look at the history of God's people in the Old Testament, there were a lot of different people that were anointed for different things. Specifically, there had been many prophets, many priests, and many kings. That's just a sampling of the kind of people in the Old Testament that were anointed to do the things that God called them. And throughout all the stories, throughout all the Old Testament, throughout all the history to this point that had been leading to Jesus... When you read all of those stories about all those prophets, all those kings, and all those priests, there's always a hint that there is one that is going to come that is going to be the priest, that is going to be the prophet, that is going to be the king. And so though Peter may not have fully understood what he was saying, he did understand that whatever hints that we have picked up as God's people about this one to come, Jesus, we confess as your disciples, you are it. You're the one. Okay? Um, That's what they're confessing here at this moment. And it's also part of what this whole mountaintop experience, that, that last story that we read, what that's all about. This cloud shows up. Uh, in the Old Testament, when God would show up, his favorite form of showing up was a cloud. It was actually called the glory cloud. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, sometimes he'd show up in the cloud in thunder and lightning or fire. Uh, you see examples of it when he leads the Jews through the wilderness after the exodus. You see it at Mount Sinai when he descends on the mountain to give the law. You see it when Solomon dedicates the temple that God comes down and dwells tangibly there in his temple. Whenever that cloud showed up, it was a symbol of God's glory and God's majesty. 
And then on top of that, at the mountaintop, you've got Elijah and Moses, right? Uh, and they're there, and there's no mistake. They're two of the two of the greatest Old Testament prophets. They also represent something that's referred to as the law and the prophets. Moses represents the law, that section of the Old Testament uh, that's attributed to him. And Elijah represents all the prophets. And so here's what you're getting on the scene of the mountain. It's as if the whole Old Testament has shown up in person to say, this is it. He's the one. He's the one we've been waiting for. And so Peter answers it rightly. You're not just some prophet like Elijah. You're not just some street preacher like John the Baptist. You are the Christ of God. Now, what does this mean? What what did this mean for them? What does it mean for us? I would suggest to you this. What this means for us, if Jesus truly is the Christ, the thing that the the person that the whole Old Testament was pointing us towards, then I think what that means is that every person for all of history, whether in this life or the next, will have to answer for themselves this question. Who is this Jesus? If Jesus truly is the Christ of God, what that means is that every person in all of history at some point will have to answer for themselves in this life or the next, who is this Jesus? Because you think about it, there's tons of different answers to that question. Some think, as has been said or, or have tried to say, that the Jesus that we get in the Gospels is just a legend. Say I grant you that. You would at least have to admit he's the greatest legend that has ever lived. The most well-known and most enduring legend that there's ever been. Some think he's just a great teacher. If I granted you that, you would at least have to admit he is the greatest teacher that has ever lived. Some say he was just a great sage, a great wise man. If so, if I granted you that, you would at least have to say he is the wisest man that has ever lived. There's something about this Jesus that goes far beyond any of the boxes that we could put him in. That's the point. But here's the thing. Most people would admit some shape or form of those things about Jesus. But what most people, even people in Jesus' own day, were hesitant to grant them him, right? Was that he was the Christ of God. C.S. Lewis takes this up in Mere Christianity. I wish I could read the whole quote. I'll just read a little bit of it for you. He said this. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he was a madman or something worse. Albert Albert Schweitzer is a well-known theologian. I guess you can call him that scholar, I guess maybe would be better. He had a rebuttal to that, actually. And he said this. He said, The Jesus of Nazareth who came forward publicly as the Messiah, who preached the ethic of the kingdom of God, who founded the kingdom of heaven upon earth and died to give his work its final consecration, that Jesus never had any existence. That was Schweitzer's rebuttal uh, to this, this kind of sentiment. If I granted Schweitzer that, I would at least have to say, he's still the greatest person that's never existed. He's the most enduring figure of history, of all of history. And look, there's some American lens to that, right? Because we grew up in a Christian nation, if you want to say that. Um, 
but it's not just a cultural thing. Jesus, he's more, he's more well-known around the globe than Gandhi, than, than uh, Muhammad. You name it, right? Donald McLeod sums it all up best like this. This man that we find in the Gospels... This man who criticizes the apostles. This man who criticizes his own culture. Moved so freely among women. Taught the most splendid parables. Preached the Sermon on the Mount. Prayed John 17. You tell me who created him. Which of the gospel writers had the literary genius? Which of them created this Jesus? The point is this. If Jesus is the Christ of God, there is no middle ground with Him. He can't just be your friend. He can't just be your teacher. He's the Christ of God. Either He is every bit who we are told He was and who He claimed to be, or He's not even worth the paper that His name is written on. There's no middle ground. But here's the question I want you to just think about for a second. How did Peter get the answer right? Just think about it. I suggest to you this. He listened to Jesus' words. He witnessed Jesus' work. And he witnessed people's responses to him. Both positive and negative. In other words, Peter came to this conclusion by doing nothing different than the means that you and I have. Week in and week out right here for 30 minutes. Who is this Jesus? You must make your choice, as C.S. Lewis says. That's the glory of His name. But let's move on to the glory of His calling. To the glory of His calling. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a, was a martyr, a pastor and martyr during World War II in Germany. Uh, when considering this passage in one of his writings, he said this, When Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. I think that is the most succinct and right on uh, pinpointing of the glory of Jesus' calling. You see here, the disciples were convinced, yes, that Jesus was the Christ. They'd given up everything to follow Him, right? But that did not mean that they fully understood what it meant. And so that kind of gives you an understanding as to why Jesus immediately wants to tell them, oh, by the way, I've got to suffer, I've got to be rejected, and I've got to die. And if, to add insult to injury almost, you read 23, and He says, oh yeah, and if you would come after Me... You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. This is the glory of Jesus' calling. This is at the root of why Jesus would shush people early on in His ministry when they would claim uh, who He was. Because His time had not yet come. His time to suffer and be rejected and die had not yet come. And He knew that that was the pathway to glory for Himself. And then He lays it out for His disciples here. That is also the pathway to glory of you who would follow Me. That's Jesus was very upfront about what it would mean to follow him. So let's break this down. Let's break verse 23 down. Maybe a very popular or, or known verse to you, but let's break it down just for a second. The first thing Jesus says that if you would come after me, you must deny yourself. I just want you to think about that statement for just a second. If you're going to come after me, if you're going to say that you're, that, that you're a follower of me, that you're going to say like God is my number one in your Instagram bio or whatever, maybe that's junior high, I don't know. You have to deny yourself. And so I want you to think about this. Because I think if we're honest, 
Most of us in this room, in our heart of hearts, we have never believed that following Jesus would ever really cost us anything. And Jesus meets that right out front and says, to follow me, you must deny yourself. This is what I think a lot of what we so-called evangelicals, if you want to call yourself that or not, are struggling with in our culture today. We find ourselves in this post-Christian culture that really doesn't care what we have to say. And so we're wondering, have I ever really believed that following Jesus would actually cost me something? Because you see, who Jesus is and what He came to do It led him to a cross. It led him straight to a cross. It led him to a cross at the ultimate cost to himself, at the ultimate cost of his own comfort, and the ultimate cost of his own possessions, what little he had in this earth. And if we're going to be about what he is about, Jesus' expectation that he lays out for us is, how could you expect anything but the same? And so there's a question that we have worth asking ourselves Have you ever denied yourself anything for the simple fact that you love Jesus? Has there ever come a moment, have you ever come close to a moment in your life where you've denied yourself something for the simple fact that you love Jesus? Have you ever said, you know what, I can't watch that because I follow Jesus. I'm not saying necessarily you said that out loud. I'm talking about like in your head or your heart, right? Um, Or on a poster out in the middle. No. You know what? I don't think I can go to that party. Because I'm trying to follow Jesus. You know what? I'm sorry. I don't think I can come up to your room tonight. Because I'm trying to follow Jesus. Have we ever believed... That following Jesus would actually ever cost us anything. Jesus says the first cost of following him is yourself. Your wants, your desires, your comfort, your security, your pleasure, you name it. He expands on this though. He says, second, take up your cross. You've got to feel the full weight of what Jesus says here. Not only are his disciples reeling from the fact that Jesus has just said he's going to have to die, but then he immediately also tells them that they're going to have to experience the same thing daily. Daily. And also, the cross, is just kind of hard for us, I think. The cross for us, it's such an affectionate image because we know what Jesus did for us there, right? But you gotta be, you gotta hear this through not knowing that that's exactly how Jesus is gonna die for you. That was the cruelest instrument of execution in this day. And it was, it was a form of execution used to make a statement. It wasn't, the purpose of it wasn't just to kill people, it was to make a statement. Okay? And so there was an incredible stigma associated with dying via crucifixion. And I, look, I don't want to make light of what I'm about to use as an analogy, but I think it culturally it could, it could have been analogous to something like this. Think about someone like Martin Luther King during civil rights telling his followers that to follow me, you would have to take up the noose daily. Now, there are not many people in this room that know, that feel personally the stigma of that, but you feel the weight of that. Hey, these oppressors that we have, that you think I'm here to free you from, actually, you've got to submit to their instrument of execution to follow me. 
There's some weightiness to this, right? And again, it's an image that we see of Jesus in the end, right? Persons would carry their own cross outside of the city to die. It was a one-way trip. To carry a cross was a one-way trip to death. And so what Jesus is getting at is, that, is he's getting at beyond the ordinary trials of life. So in a sense, like the fact that you made a C on the test after fall break probably isn't proper to call your cross to bear, right? We're talking about beyond the ordinary trials of life. But he doesn't stop there because then he says, and follow me. And so here's the comfort in all of it. The comfort in all of it is that you're following Jesus in that you're going somewhere he has gone first. So obviously the disciples heard it one way here in the moment, but obviously after he died and after he was resurrected, they, they heard it a whole new way. Philip Ryken says it like this, the Christian life is a life after Christ, marked by suffering and death. He bore the cross for us, and now in our lives we bear it for him. It's the path that leads to continual self-denial, continual self-sacrifice. It's the path that leads to continual derision from the world and the comforts that we previously enjoyed in it. We are willingly taking that up daily, Jesus said, if we are following him. And he drives it home by saying, those who would save their lives, it seems so paradoxical, right? Must lose them. And this, I think this is the most applicable thing for y'all as far as trying to drive this home. The road, the journey ahead, some of y'all are already well-versed in this uh, for how many ever years you've been at college, right? But the road ahead of all of you is paved, very clearly marked by a temptation. A temptation to self-preserve, to self-soothe, to self-secure, to self-medicate, to self-succeed, to self-propel, to self-discipline, to self, to self, to self, to self, to self. Do you pick up a theme? That is what our world tells you. If you want anything in this life, look to yourself. And we wonder why studies tell us that your generation is the most anxious and stressed generation that there has ever been studied. Why would that be? Because when you carry the cross of self, you just end up dead. (laughs) And that's it. But you'll find those things, those self-preserving, self-soothing, self-securing, self-succeeding, self-propelling things. You'll find them in the right job, the right spouse, the right time to get the right job, the right time to get married, the right time to have a kid, the right time to build the picket fence. Whatever. You name it, right? Why? Because those are the things that the world has laid before you to get ahead in the world. Solomon, King Solomon in Ecclesiastes, he asked the question, What in the world is there for you to gain? For your toil. And so Jesus kind of here offers his own version, right? What gain is it if you had the whole world, but you lose yourself and you lose your soul? And so the option that Jesus lays before us here is will you live for yourself or will you lose yourself and live? That's the question. And that's the glory of his calling 
And here's the thing. It's so paradoxical. It's so confounding that like not very many verses later, you can look ahead yourself. His disciples ask him, hey, Jesus, who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom? And Jesus is like, no, he doesn't do that. But this is the glory of his calling. How are we going to get that in our lives? How are we going to understand how to do this? How are we going to go about this? Well, that's why we read this final passage. The glory of the sun is what happens on this mountaintop. What exactly is going on on the top of this mountain? You see, Jesus' appearance is altered. It, uh, it isn't just altered. He's transfigured. Okay, He's not just reflecting glory. We're, we're being told that glory is emanating physically, tangibly, visibly out of Him. Hebrews 1, the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We've got Elijah, we've got Moses, we've got the glory cloud is there. And so Jesus, in effect, saying for for his disciples and for us for all time, that everything in the world and in history has been pointing to the fact that I am the final version, the ultimate version Of getting to God. It's me. I'm the way there. It's through me. And so we ask this question like, why why this story? Why does he only take Peter, James, and John? Who was this for? Well, a few people. The first thing, which maybe is obvious, this whole episode is for his disciples, right? Because he's just rocked their world. He's just driven home for them once again, very tangibly. I am going to be rejected That is my calling. I'm going to be killed. That is my calling. You will follow me and you must do the same if you will answer my calling. Their world has just been rocked. And so he lets these three, kind of the ringleaders amongst the twelve, onto the mountain. And what he gives them is a glimpse. A glimpse of glory. A glimpse of glory. Why? Because they needed it. What did they need? Well, what they're seeing, obviously, right? Because we don't see it every day. They're seeing something that is not of this world. It's the glory, as he says in verse 26, of God's heaven, of the Father's heaven, and of the Son. The disciples and others others that followed him thought that the Messiah, whoever it would be, would come in glory. And what Jesus is showing them is that glory is indeed what awaits And so what he's showing them, even though his calling, as shocking as it is, what he's saying is, this world is not all that there is. That is why I came down. This I should say it like this. This world as it is, is not all that there is. That's why he gives them a glimpse of this otherworldly glory. This world is not it. But secondly, I want you to think about this. This is for Jesus. This was for Jesus who's about to set his face towards Jerusalem to march headlong into what he was called to do. And so we see Moses and Elijah there. And what are they, what are they there talking about? We're told that they were talking about his departure that he was about to accomplish. This is one of my favorite languages. Again, I mentioned Greek and Hebrew from time to time. I'm no scholar. But the Greek word there is exodon. The same word for the title of the Greek Old Testament book, Exodus. They were there, Moses and Elijah, to talk to Jesus about His own personal exodus. 
You see, what Jesus was about to undergo, while Moses freed God's people from slavery in Egypt and onward to the promised land, Jesus was about to undergo His own personal exodus by which He would deliver His people from their slavery to sin and death itself. To lead them, to lead us to the promised land, to the heaven of His Father's glory. And so here's what you see. This mountaintop experience, ultimately, even though we weren't there, is for us. It was for us. Because the question endures for all of time. How can a sinful and broken people like us get in? How can a sinful, broken people that were created for glory get back into that glory without perishing for eternity? And the answer here that we're told is only if Jesus leads an exodus greater than any exodus that Moses ever could have led. Only if Jesus is a greater prophet than Elijah ever could have been. And only if that exodus could be into, through, and out of death itself. See, this is the beautiful part. The Bible tells us that one day, because of what Jesus did, the glory of the Son becomes the glory of the children of God. That's the promise. That's the assurance. And that's the glory. Paul puts it like this in Romans 8, 18 through 21. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I heard Pastor Brian Habig bring this up to drive it home and I think it's hilarious. Have you ever thought about that verse in, in Amazing Grace? Have you ever actually thought about the words, when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. Brian Habig tells about growing up, he always thought that bright shining was the place. When we've been there 10,000 years, where? Bright shining. That's where we'll be. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining... As the sun. What is bright shining as the sun? We are. We are. Did you notice? Last thing. You've got to look at it. It's so simple. It's so profound. Look at verse 18. And then look at verse 28. What was Jesus doing? He was praying. He was praying. A habit of his life on earth. He was just withdrawing to pray. So the question is, how can we commune with Jesus like the disciples did? How can we get a taste of glory like the disciples did? How can we know the Father through Jesus like the disciples did? The answer throughout this passage is pretty straightforward. Suffer with Jesus. Listen to Jesus' words. And pray with Him and to Him. How profound is that? 
2 Corinthians 4, Paul puts it like this. We read it, Olivia read it for us earlier. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If you're anything like me, I have to wonder, do you long for glory? This is it. That's an invitation. Father, would we be those who seek glory? But would we be those that seek glory like the one who secured that glory for us? Would we take the lead? Would we take charge? Would we have courage? Would we be on fire? Would it be all those things that we've ever heard? But would we do it like suffering servants, denying ourselves, taking up crosses, and following Jesus? Father, we don't quite know how we could be able to do it. We pray that you would give us strength to figure it out. That you give us our, your spirit to make it a reality in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.